Well, as some of our children start back to school this week, they might find themselves in a class with uh, someone who is the same name as them. Uh, we haven't experienced that, that so far, uh, though in Willow's class last year there were two Olivias, and so they had to find a way to distinguish between them so they knew which Olivia they were, they were talking about. Otherwise, when the teacher says, Olivia, you have two different people looking up and, and thinking the teacher is talking to them. Uh, and there's a bit of a connection uh, there with the name of God that we're looking at tonight. Uh, Because it's a name that is specifically designed to contrast God with other gods. Uh, It's a name that tells us something about God in contrast to the other gods. Uh, The difference with with the classroom illustration, of course, is that the other gods aren't real. And yet people act as if they are. And so in contrast to idols and false gods, God calls himself the living God. It's a name which occurs almost equally in the two testaments, 15 times in the Old Testament, 13 in the New. And I trust it will be both encouraging and challenging uh, this evening as we consider Firstly, what it means for God to be called the living God. And then secondly, what it means for us to be called children of the living God, as we're called in both Testaments. Uh, So firstly, we'll look at the phrase, the the living God. Uh, And our first point is, why is God called the living God? Why is God called the living God? Well, as I've already mentioned, this name is clearly a contrast to the gods of the nations. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. As we sing in a couple of different psalms, but our God is the living God. And in the Bible, to put the the living God on the same level as these gods of wood and stone is an outrageous thing. 2 Chronicles 32, uh, it's a verse uh, that that is so relevant to our society. It says that the servants of of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, what did they do? They spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the people of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. To put the living God on the same level as these dead gods of the people of the earth is a, a terrible thing. And there are those in the Bible who come to recognize that the gods that they have been worshiping are dead and empty, and that the Lord is the living God. Uh, we see that with King Darius in the book of Daniel. Boys and girls, do you remember what, what King Darius did? He did something that he didn't really want to do, and that was throw Daniel into the den of lions. And when God saved Daniel, Darius made a decree that everyone was to fear the God of Daniel. Why? For he is the living God, said Darius, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. 
And the message of the New Testament is no different. Uh, We read it in Acts 14 as the crowd start worshipping Paul and Barnabas. uh, the, The men tear their clothes and they say, We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven, the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And so, brothers and sisters, our God is a living God. When we pray, we're talking to a God who really hears us because he is alive. We aren't talking to a figment of our imagination. And so, mocking the living God will not go unpunished. When Sennacherib was at the walls of Jerusalem... King Hezekiah said to the prophet Isaiah, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words whom the king of Assyria has sent to mock the living God. Therefore lift up your prayer. People are mocking the living God. What will we do? Will we, will we rage against them? No, let's pray that God would hear and intervene and demonstrate that he is the living God. Uh, the Assyrians then send a letter to Hezekiah. Uh, uh, the, letter, the letter says, you've heard the things that the king of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered, Hezekiah? Have the gods of the other nations delivered them? In other words, the gods of the other nations haven't been able to to save anyone from us mighty Assyrians. Why do you think your God will be any different? Why will the Lord be any different? And what does Hezekiah do? He takes a letter to the temple. He spreads it out before the Lord and he prays, Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. And can we not pray the same way? Our secular society tries to put all gods on the same level. The Muslim God, Hindu gods, the Christian God. They're all seen as equal and all equally useless. And so should we not pray and say, Oh Lord God, they speak of you, the living God, as they speak of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. We can pray, will you not work in such a way that people cannot deny you are real? And we can pray that God would do that at the national level, but also at the local level. And I think we, we saw a, a little bit of that even at, at Paul Macaulay's funeral, when you had a, a humanist celebrant And even he had to acknowledge the change that had taken place in Paul in the last year or so of his life. Let's pray that God will so work in the lives of men and women in our community. That people will have to acknowledge that God has been at work in him. So to call God the living God means that he's different from dead idols. But what about most people around us who would say that they don't worship any God? uh, Who seem to be be entirely secular? Well, they have their idols too, of course. They they idolise people, they idolise celebrities, uh, they idolise a certain lifestyle. 
churchgoers in England. Uh, today we're invited by the Bishop of Derby to worship the idol of entertainment uh, rather than worship God. Uh, people around us are worshippers. Uh, to quote Russell Brand, who, who's not a, a theologian, he's a, a comedian, uh, but, he, but he understands what many don't. He says the implications of the first commandment is that we are a species that worships and if you do not worship the divine, you will worship the profane. You will worship your identity. You will worship the template laid before you by the culture. If you do not worship the divine, you will worship the profane. And to call God the, the living God is to contrast him with those idols as well. Take the idolizing of another person. Even though that person has life, the life that that person has is still in contrast to the life that the living God has. Because God not only has life, he is life. No one gave him life. Rather, he is the one who gives life to others. Acts 17, 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There were a number of, of, of psalms uh, we, we could have sung this evening uh, to tie in. One, one that we're not singing is Psalm 36, 9 which says that the Lord is the fountain of life. Or another place we could go is 1 Timothy 6, which says he alone has immortality. Have you ever wondered about that verse? Um, because maybe someone will hear that and say, well, are the angels not immortal? Uh, the angels, they're not, they're not mortal, they're, they're not human, they will never die. Are the angels not immortal? Or they'll say, well, what about the human soul? Uh, we, we don't believe that the human soul will, will, will one day be annihilated. Is the human soul not immortal? Well, yes, in one sense they are. Angels will never die. The human soul will never die. How then can it be said that God alone has immortality? Well, the answer is that the, uh, the, the, the immortality that the angels have, the immortality that the human soul has, these are all gifts of God. No other creature has life in themselves, uh, but they all depend on it for God. And so to worship another person is to worship someone who only has life because it is a gift of the living God. The same is true of the, the demonic spiritual forces behind the, the gods that people of other religions worship. They too are in contrast with the living God because any life they have comes from him who is the source of life. Uh, and of course on an even more basic level, to, to put another human being in the place of God is to replace the living God with someone who will one day die. A memorial service was held during the week for uh, American pastor and author Tim Keller. And people were quoting something he'd said a number of years back when speaking about his love for his wife. 
He'd said one or other of us is going to look at the other person in a coffin. And if our Saviour is in that coffin, how will he help us when our heart is breaking? In other words, if you make another human being into your Saviour, not only will that person disappoint you in life, but one day they'll die and you won't have a Saviour to turn to. But if you trust in the living God, you're trusting in a God that death can't take from you and that even your own death can't separate you from. So that's a bit about what it means that God is the living God. So what implications does that have for us? Well that brings us to our second point this evening. Who are the children of the living God? Who are the children of the living God? How would you describe the difference between someone who has been born again and someone who merely goes to church? Well, one phrase that I've, I've used is the language of... Or one phrase I've heard people use is the language of being spiritually alive. And I think that's helpful because the Bible's message is that unless God intervenes, we will live a physical life for however long while at the same time being spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, The phrase born again speaks of new spiritual life. According to his great mercy, says Peter, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To be given new birth by the living God is to be born again to a living hope. To choose Jesus is to choose life as Joshua once offered the people. And the living God is the only one who can bring life. Is that not important to remember as we uh, have a, a week of outreach fast approaching? People around us are the walking dead. Spiritually speaking, they're as dead as doornails. We cannot give them life, but the living God can. And so let's ask him to do that. Let's ask the living God to give them life. And let's go out with confidence. What gave David confidence as he went out against Goliath? Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. So, boys and girls, David, when he fights Goliath, he, he, he talks to Goliath about the Lord of hosts, and he also uh, talks about the living God. Uh, so two different names of God used by David as he fights Goliath. And when the living God is defied, he will act. That was the confidence David had. And when God acts, he always acts in both judgment and salvation. We can also go out in our mission with confidence because we have his promise. Romans nine twenty six. 
in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. The Holy Spirit is there talking about the conversion of the Gentiles. And he's talking about places that were once written off. And in those places, the Bible tells us, people will be called children of the living God. It's a promise of life where once there was nothing but death. And if we believe that God can do that, if we believe he can bring life where there has only been death, let's pray that he would. And the tragedy for people rejecting Jesus or walking away from Jesus, as many are doing in our, in our day, is that they are choosing death instead. Jesus tells us that Satan is a killer. He was a murderer from the beginning. I watched a testimony during the week of a woman who was converted after years of involvement in New Age stuff. And she started getting involved in the spiritual world, which at the start she didn't think was, was real, uh, but she prided herself in being open-minded, so she thought she'd investigated a little bit. But as she got deeper into it, she started getting scared. And then she started experiencing a compulsion to end her own life. And she said that she knew that wasn't her. She knew that was demonic. She knew it was something coming from outside her. Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. Listening to him will lead to death. Perhaps premature physical death for some, but certainly eternal death. And that message needs to be surrounded today to those, particularly to those who have been brought up with the truth, but are considering walking away. Take care, brothers, warns the book of Hebrews, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Later on in Hebrews, we have the warning that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And perhaps we hear that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and we're thinking about those outside the church, those who have uh, never heard the gospel, perhaps certainly never believed the gospel, but actually the book of Hebrews is written to those who had believed the gospel and were starting to turn away from it. Uh, the beginning of that section a few verses earlier says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and then it goes on to say it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it's a warning about turning back. It's a warning uh, for us in here more than for those out there. There are only two options for us all, life or death. And those who truly choose life are not simply those who make a profession once and then wander along aimlessly through life. But they are those who keep choosing life and who make it to the end. Jesus said that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. 
And the ultimate evidence that someone is spiritually, spiritually alive is that they keep going. And so while we'll, we'll not be able to infallibly uh, tell if there is true spiritual life in someone else until the end, uh, we can look for it in ourselves. Uh, and we do need to look for it in ourselves to make sure it's there. None of us want what the Lord Jesus said about the church in Sardis to be true of us. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So how can we know if we're spiritually alive? Or to put it another way, what will be the effect of the living God being at work in us? If the living God is at work in someone, what will it look like? One effect will be that we'll toil and strive for godliness. When Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, he said, train yourself for godliness. And he says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God. Could our pursuit of godliness be described as toiling and striving? Or do we somehow think that we've arrived and we can free wheel all the way home? The Bible says that if we have our hope set on the living God, we will strive and toil. And if we don't strive and toil for godliness, it suggests that our hearts have shifted from the living God. One of the the pictures in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua that the living God was going to be with his people is that they would drive the nations before them out of the land of Canaan. And surely we can take that as a picture of us in God's strength driving out the indwelling sin in our lives. If the living God really indwells us by his spirit then the sin in our lives, in our hearts, will not be able to rest easy. Uh, No matter how uh, deep-rooted or long-running it is, God's people couldn't have rested easy in the promised land while the enemy nations were still there. And if we are true believers, we will not be able to rest easy with the remainders of sin in our lives. None of us in this life will be the finished product, but we will be toiling and striving. Because as God's people, we are, as Paul says, the temple of the living God. Those who have the responsibility to care for earthly temples will keep them clean uh, particularly if they actually believe that that God or a God dwells in them and how much more should we be scrupulous about keeping our hearts clean uh, of being sensitive to sin of confessing sin knowing that God does dwell in us by the spirit Uh, and the the particular sin that, that Paul is dealing with there is when he talks about uh, we're temples of the living God is being unequally yoked and so the the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever 
A union between someone who is spiritually alive and someone who is spiritually dead. You wouldn't marry a corpse. You wouldn't marry someone who is dead. But that's what it's like for the believer to marry an unbeliever. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. And we could say, let the the dead marry the dead. Let unbelievers marry unbelievers. And, And we'll pray that God would save them both. But the believer must not marry an unbeliever. Uh, Yes, sometimes someone can can pull the wool over someone else's eyes. And at times uh, people will have got married as unbelievers and God will save one of them. uh, And and will pray that the other one will be saved too. Uh, And so what I'm talking about tonight is those who who go into that situation willingly. uh, Because that will affect... It will affect not only them for the rest of their lives. It will affect their children. It will affect their grandchildren. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And it's never too early to start praying for uh, the children and young people in the church. That God would not only save them if he hasn't already. But that they would marry believers. One of my friends conducted a wedding last week and the groom's mother was saying that they had been praying for that day from before their son was even born. Why would someone pray about their child's wedding even before the child was born? Because marrying a believer is so important. So brothers and sisters, pray that the children in this church would be children of the living God and pray that if it is God's will for them to marry, which it isn't for everyone, but if it is, that they would marry children of the living God as well. Well, one final thing that knowing the living God should lead to is being involved in the church, which is described in the New Testament as the church of the living God. Paul writes to Timothy about how people should behave as part of the church. Uh, the idea that there would be believers who, who weren't involved in, in the church doesn't seem to cross his mind. And similarly, the book of Hebrews reminds us what we're coming to as we worship. And it is the city of the living God. Uh, Remember the book of Hebrews, it's written to people tempted to go go back to to the outward pomp and ceremony of Jewish religion. Those tempted to despise the unspectacularness of New Testament worship. And what do we read in Hebrews? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's what one Church of England bishop said. It was okay to skip to watch football. But how can we turn our back on Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and innumerable angels? One of the marks of a true child of God is being involved in the church of the living God, which is the city of the living God. 
And then just to close with this, the, 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 the final evidence that we are children of the living God is that we thirst for him. Psalm 42, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now this isn't actually a separate uh, mark of the child of God uh, from, from what I just said. Because when the psalm writers talk about thirsting for the living God, they're talking about public worship. Uh, psalm 84, which we sang at the start, says, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So this longing for God finds a, a, a partial satisfaction here on earth. But the true fulfilment will only come in heaven itself. The child of God longs for heaven because they long to go home. And they have that longing because the living God has made them alive. Now we all fall short of the picture that has just been painted. But if you can see at least some evidence of these marks in your life. And if uh, where you fall short, if it grieves you, then take heart that the living God has been at work in you. Amen. Well, let's praise the, the living God who, who is life and gives life uh, by singing from the end of Psalm 18. Psalm 18 verses 38 to 41, page 32. Surely we can't talk about the living God without thinking of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And in light of that, uh, surely verse 38 takes on new meaning. The Lord's alive. Blessed be my rock. Saviour, exalted be. And then who are we singing of in the last verse? Verse 41. He gives his king great victories and mercy he displays to David his anointed one, and to his seed always. Well, David, God's anointed, God's Messiah, God's Christ, ultimately points us forward to the true Messiah, the true Christ, the Lord Jesus, and his great victory over Satan, sin, and death itself. Now, Psalm eighteen thirty-eight to the end, we'll stand and sing. <laughs>